Welcome back. We're going to start a new series this morning. It's called The Age of Algorithm. If you're following with your journal, this series starts on page 17. The introduction to the series is there and space for you to take notes. I, uh, I am aware of the time. People are regularly concerned that I have no awareness of the time when I get up to preach. So I'm going to do this sermon quickly, uh, but let me just explain what I mean by quickly. Jesus once said, behold, I'm coming back quickly. So just, uh, just be aware of what a theologian means when they say the word quickly. Here's my plan for how we're going to get through the sermon uh, this morning. I want to begin by talking about some trees and then lead us to uh, an ancient module, which I hope will bring freshness and something of life to us. But let's begin by turning our Bibles or our devices and apps to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 8. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 2 says this, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the human he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. Genesis chapter 1, this story started with chaos and disorder. If you remember, the writer of Genesis described the earth as void and formless. And yet, a chapter and eight verses later, we have a garden at the center of the world. Rivers are flowing from this garden to water the whole earth. And there are two trees in the middle of the garden. God's creative work has taken us from chaos and disorder to harmony and order. But we don't often read this story properly. And because we don't read this story properly, we have a tendency to miss what's going on in the story. Christian tradition in recent years has been, argue, has been to argue about the factuality of this story. And invariably, when we're arguing about the factuality of this story, we're not asking questions about the truth of this story. It's one thing to say, is this story factual? And another thing to say, how is this story true? Gardens in ancient literature speak of sacred space. When you're reading creation narratives throughout the world that this text comes from, gardens speak of sacred space, not green space, not just, oh, this is a nice place to pay, play ball, but gardens speak to the presence of God, the presence of the divine. Notice in the garden that the life is flowing from this garden. Rivers bring life in the ancient world. If you've ever had to survive off rivers, you'll know you want to live near one. And here, the writer is telling us that rivers are going out from this garden in the center. The garden is at the center of all of God's order. It marks the divine presence in the center of that. Some ancient interpreters around about the time of Jesus, when they read the story of Eden, they saw Eden as a prototype of the Holy of Holies in the temple the center space where God dwells. Now, at the center of this garden, so the garden's in the center of the world, and in the center of the garden are two trees. The two trees are of life and of wisdom and knowledge. And this, again, we can read this story. The ancient interpreters would have us read this story as God as the source of life, because life is found at the center of all of God's order. Some way... 
I would say it like this. If you were an ancient reader reading this story, what you would learn from it is that a relationship with God is the way of life and the way of wisdom. But the story doesn't end there. In chapter 3, we get this story, just a few verses later. The story. And as I read this story, I wonder what questions might go through your mind, including questions about, did this story happen? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The way that we've often read this story within the church in the last 50 years or so is almost a lesson in how not to read this story. In fact, if you have an English translation of the Bible and you get to Genesis chapter 3, the English translators sometimes to help us navigate, they put headings into the Bible so we know what this story is about. And the heading that most commonly comes with this story is this one. It simply says, the fall. Perhaps you've heard this story referred to as the fall of humanity, the fall of man, or, or whatever sort of phraseology you use. Essentially, the premise of the story is this. God set a standard for humanity. And humanity was disobedient to God's law, disobedient to God's standards, and fell into sin. And the importance of this is actually this story and how we read it, particularly in the Western context in the last 50 years or so, is we read this story in this particular way, and it then affects how we see all sorts of other things, including sin. So what happens is we, we understand sin as God setting a standard and us failing to meet it, us falling from God's standard, failing to achieve what God wants. Essentially, sin is disobedience to God by failing to achieve his standards. So perhaps it's interesting to you then to know that the Bible never uses the word fall to describe the story that we've just read. Neither in the story itself or any other point in the Bible does the Bible refer to this story as the fall of humanity. And interestingly, perhaps, the Bible never refers to humanity as fallen. Now, if you speak to a Jewish rabbi, they'll talk to you about this story, and they'll talk to you about it in ways that sound deeply unfamiliar to you. Rabbis from the time of Jesus and onwards would tell you that this story is about the first sin, and the first sin is not disobedience, but idolatry. And we read this story and we think, how can this be a story about idolatry? Idolatry is about putting things before God. This story is about humans failing to meet God's standards. But the rabbis think this story is about idolatry because they read it differently. They read it thinking about what the whole story is doing, not just this one story. And if we see how the whole story is told, the problem is much bigger than disobedience and eating fruit that you shouldn't. 
In fact, what you'll notice if you think about how this story is being set up, a garden in the center of the world and at the center of the garden is two trees and all of this is symbolizing God's place in the divine order. You realize that the story we've just read is a story about the decision made by the humans to be like God and to place themselves at the center of the story. The story has introduced us to God bringing order to the chaos. And what we end up with from chaos and disorder, we end up with God at the center. And then the humans come along and decide that we should be at the center. We should be the source of wisdom. We should be able to have the knowledge. The humans choose to work for themselves and not work alongside God as has been set up in the story. The humans forfeit relationship with God and relationship with each other and with the relationship with creation in order to be at the center. Now, if you go back to this story and perhaps read it again in your own time with this lens on, you'll realize how much this story speaks to the problem of relationship. After the humans have eaten the fruit, notice the first thing we hear from God is God saying to the humans, where are you? His relationship's broken. He doesn't know where they are. Where are they hiding from him? Relationship is beginning to fall apart. Once it's evident and apparent within the story that the humans have disobeyed God and put themselves in the center, God speaks. He speaks to the serpent, he speaks to the woman, and he speaks to the man. And the things he speaks to them about all talk about relational dysfunction. To the serpent, he says, you will now be human's enemy. And the translator, sorry, the, the interpreter of this story in Genesis shows us how that now humans and serpents, perhaps humans and all creatures, find themselves afraid and against each other. The story tells us that the, the, the comment to woman is that now pain has entered the world. Childbirth, humans enter the world in pain. And so this image of the pain of childbirth becomes part of the, the, the interpreter's way of explaining to us the angst and the brokenness that's now in the world. And then it comes to the man and talks about how the soil now will require working. It's not just going to bring forth food, but actually it requires to be worked and, and, and worked at and fought with because now weeds and thorns are going to come. Side note, the translator or the, sorry, I keep saying the translator, the writer of Genesis, when trying to explain the brokenness of the world and how it impacts women, came up with childbirth. And when it impacts men, he came up with yard work. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to leave that out there. But whether you are a man or a woman, I just want to release you today to say, if you go home and, and you do not need to do yard work, because yard work is clearly evil. It says so in Genesis. Uh, but more seriously, talk about it. Humans and animals are now at each other's throats. Humans bringing other humans into the world is, is racked in pain and difficulty. And even creation and humanity is no longer in the right space. The final part of the story is that the humans leave Eden. So their relationship with God is broken. The whole story of Genesis chapter 3 is rooted in the idea that I will make my own decisions for myself. And I will bring my wisdom to lead all of this, and that that will lead to brokenness. Which brings me back to this question about this story. 
Is it possible that the great truth about the story of Eden is not that it happened, but that actually this story always happens? That this story is the eternal story. This ancient story from thousands years ago happens in our world every single day. The truth of Eden, you might say, is universally acknowledged. It's acknowledged by every marketing agent in the world, by every billboard you drive past, and by every algorithm that brings pop-ups onto your computer. The basic premise that governs all of these things, which is rooted in the Eden story, is simply this, that every human, when given the opportunity, will put themselves at the center of the story. That we will always make it about me. The mall wants you to believe that it's about you. Just wander down the mall one day and notice how they tell you that story. The pop-ups, the algorithm, the Instagram, it's always speaking to you. The world is working on a premise that Eden knew to be true. And even your computer <laughs> appears to be aware of it, that you will at every opportunity put yourself at the middle. You see, because we're really predictable and the algorithms know this. They're aware of this. And we want to live one particular way of life, but our computers tell us the way we actually live. It's this thing, and you know what I mean when I say this, is you tell your friends at work that you're really into that new Coen Brothers movie because it's deeply arty and makes you think. But when people switch on your Netflix, all it recommends to you is Great British Bake Off and other things like that. Because it's based on what you're actually watching not what you're telling people <laughs> that you're watching. Perhaps you can relate to this story here that David Zahl tells. This is a story about a music streaming service official. The official tells a story like this. The subscriber contacted the help desk to complain about Celine Dion songs appearing on his personalized radio station. You know, these radio stations that work out what you probably like based on your listening trends. There must be some mistake, he insisted. The official responded by asking if the music was just wrong, possibly the result of a data error. Algorithms make mistakes sometimes. The subscriber said, well, well, no, it was the right sort of thing, but it was Celine Dion. I said, well, was it the set? Did it not flow in the set? And he said, no, it, it kind of worked, but it's Celine Dion. We had a couple more back and forths, and finally his last email to me was, Oh my God, I like Celine Dion. <laughs> Is it slightly terrifying that the software on your phone might know you better than you do? And you might not like what it reveals. It might be that we want to live one particular life, but the software knows us better because it's built on a premise that is ancient and old. St. Augustine in the fourth century, the African bishop, he described humanity as incurvatus in se. The Latin literally translates as something like curved in on ourselves. Like this is the story of Eden. It's the story of the algorithms on your phone and it's the story of the commercials that you see on the internet. That humans are predictably always putting themselves in the center, even when we're trying to pretend that we're not. But the biblical story Biblical story points out that this will always lead to disorder. It begins in Eden, 
And that story is told again and again and again. Jeremiah describes it quite well in one sentence where he says this to the people, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God while he led you in the way? What Jeremiah is noting is that we have choices in our life, but we choose to locate ourselves centrally. As a result of locating ourselves in the center, we continue to make disordered decisions because we were never meant to be in the center. But we keep locating ourselves there and assuming that that's the solution. Let me think about the pandemic for a moment. And I know that there's a part of us whenever we talk about the pandemic is like, oh, can that not just be over and that we can get back to normal? But I want to look at the pandemic briefly through the lens of Eden. Think about the story that we're telling, the story of us putting ourselves at the center instead of God. If that is the universal story, and I wonder if I've maybe convinced you of that or at least opened the door to it as a possibility. If this is the universal story, this ancient story of a garden is also our story today, what might the impact to us have been to live through a pandemic when so much of the response to the pandemic was that we first think about ourselves? How do you keep yourself safe? How does this impact me? What's going on in my life as a result of this? I'd, I'd be tempted to just tentatively suggest that our whole response to the pandemic, particularly in the Western world, ultimately emphasized the big me. Think about it. We spent a lot of the time at home with me. <laughs> it was me, and it was all about me. And occasionally there's moments where we broke out of that and thought charitably about others, but we were conditioned for 18 months to two years, actually, to keep thinking about ourselves. And now... We're trying to get back to normal. And I just wonder if you're not maybe finding it difficult. How's it going for you, normal? Is it how you remember it? Is it as easy as you remember it? Or has something changed? Over the course of those few years just by ourselves and largely keeping our distance and thinking about ourselves, did something change in our hearts? Take flying, for example. In 2019, the number of global flights that were interrupted by passenger disturbances were 10 per month globally. There are thousands of flights a day. But across the globe, on average, per month in 2019, events that caused planes to be rerouted because passengers were being disruptive to a level that they had to take the plane and put it on the ground was 10 per month before the pandemic. Now, 2020 arrived and flights went down massively. You'll notice you didn't do a lot of flying in 2020. You remember that? Flights went down massively, so there was a considerable reduction in the volume of flights. What do you think the num number became per month in 2020? <laughs> 500 flights a month in 2020 were impacted by passenger disturbances. What happened to us while we were all alone? Is it possible that while we were all by ourselves thinking about ourselves, something started to be adjusted and disrupted in our hearts even more than it already is? The data that I picked up here was in a podcast from the Allender Center where they released the, this kind of conversation about this thing just recently. And they asked a series of questions in this podcast that I was moved by personally and thought, let me ask them to you. 
So take a moment, take a deep breath, close your eyes, and let me read some questions to you. And as you're thinking about these questions in this, in this moment of history right now, here they are. Do you currently find it difficult to be enthusiastic about work? Don't answer these questions, just think about them. Do you find yourself more easily frustrated these days? Do you find being in groups draining? Do you secretly rejoice when social events are canceled? Do you find that you have low capacity for others? Do you find that you even have low enthusiasm for church, for prayer, and for devotion? Now, here's what I'd love you to do in real old-fashioned ways. <laughs> Nobody knows which question you're responding to, but if any of those questions were relatable to you, I'm stick your hand up. And I look around quickly. <laughs> I notice that from my perspective, pretty much everybody put their hands up. But how many of you wondered as I read that list, oh, I thought it was just me that felt like that. And here's the fascinating thing about us as humans. Our me-centeredness is so broken that it even impacts us in ways that aren't prideful or narcissistic. Right? Sometimes in, in, in humble ways, we still think it's just all about me. Oh, it's just me that feels like that. It's, it's just me that's impacted that way. Even in our pain, the brokenness of Eden affects us. Like all of those questions I read to you had something to do with relationship. And being me-centered for such a long time, it's kind of hard to think about relationship. We've become perhaps more broken. Perhaps you found yourself in a situation and perhaps you're noticing this at increased level where maybe you can relate to this. Something's gone wrong, somebody is angry, and you assume that you're the problem, only to discover later it was nothing to do with you at all. Nobody was mad at you. Nobody even was aware that you had anything to do with this, but yet you'd internalize the guilt. Have you ever felt guilty about something you didn't even do? Humans have this strange capacity to prove the story of Eden true. It's not that we're all narcissists. It's that this ancient story seems to understand humans that we put ourselves in the center. And I just want to suggest that we're not designed to be at the center. And the weariness that we're encountering, perhaps even just now, is making us vulnerable and dangerous all at the same time. See, the tension of Eden is that because we've placed ourselves at the center, we assume that we must therefore be the solution and the wisdom for all issues. But we'll fail at that. We will fall short at that. And then we'll assume once again that there's obviously something wrong with us. But I want to suggest that Eden gives us hope as well. Eden tells us a story that if we look at it slightly differently, it will always remind us that we are in the wrong place that we're trying to put ourselves in the center, and that's God's place. 
Now, next week, Tyson's going to explore this a little bit more. We'll call that what the Bible calls the solution. But I want to just offer you, to stick with computing language, offer you a, a reboot this morning. That if we know that putting ourselves in the center is the problem, how do we stop doing that? How do we put Jesus and God back in his proper place? In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, notice what Jesus says, come to me. Now think about what Jesus is saying just in those three words. It's not you at the center. It's you now coming to him. And what I want to do this morning, instead of dialogue where we might normally converse with one another, I just want to pause and take some time to pray a piece of scripture together. Sometimes we just need space and we need to just hear perhaps what God's spirit might say to us when we take space. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to read this text. We've done this before at Westside. I'm going to read this text in a Lectio way where we're going to read the text three times and just see what God says to us as the text is repeated to us. So take another breath. Taking deep breaths, I think, is a good thing to do at this moment in history. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes. Adopt an attitude of prayer, openness to God. And let me read this scripture prayerfully to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I pause briefly and ask yourself this question. In what ways am I not allowing Jesus to be at the center of my life? I'm going to read the text one more, well, again to you. This time, in honor of some of our conversation today, from the First Nations version, the same text in a different translation. Let's stay in a prayerful attitude. Come close to my side, you whose hearts are on the ground, you who are pushed down and worn out, and I will refresh you. Follow my teachings and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest from your troubled thoughts. Walk side by side with me, and I will share in your heavy load and make it light. Again, just pause. Can you hear Jesus' invitation to stop fighting to do it all yourself? And finally, let me read it from the message. Same verse again. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. One last question. What would it be like to find your burdens lightened today? And why don't you just give those burdens to Jesus in your prayer right now? Finally, I'd like to ask you to do a practice this week, known by some as the daily office. I want to invite you to a practice of, that I think will help you keep God at the center. Try it for a week. Make a commitment to say, oh, let me try this and see how it works, with the invitation that perhaps it starts to shape your life longer than that. But what if you were to start and end your day with the Lord's Prayer? Find a quiet space at both ends of your day. Pause and read through this prayer. This is a beautiful prayer because it tells you that you are loved and cared for by God. But it also tells you that it's not all about you. And Jesus taught us to pray like this. And I feel as I read this prayer, it's alternateness to the story of Eden. I want to be in the center. And Jesus teaches me to pray, your will be done instead of my will be done. And perhaps in opening ourselves up to God's love every day, we kind of reboot our systems where we can pursue his wholeness by putting him at the center of our lives and allowing that to mend the brokenness. I'd love for you to try this for a week and just see how it works for you of starting and ending your day by remembering who should be at the center of our lives and remembering that it's not us. So why don't you stand with me right now and let's pray this prayer together as a community, as we head out into our week. Let us pray then, as Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever. Amen. So go with his grace and peace this week. God bless.